Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Kristen Saunders. Kristen is the Principal Transportation Planner in the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure with the City of Pittsburgh. We caught up with Kristen while she was in town for the Shared Use Mobility Center Summit. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure is the city's newest department, having been created in 2017. It sounds like a logical way to organize the city's work But more importantly, it has five very ambitious goals, and I'm going to read them because I was really struck by them when I came across it. One, no one dies or is seriously injured traveling on city streets. Every household in Pittsburgh can access fresh fruits and vegetables within 20 minutes travel of home without the requirement of a private vehicle. All trips less than one mile are easily and enjoyably achieved by non-vehicle travel. Streets and intersections can be intuitively navigated by an adolescent, and the combined cost of transportation, housing, and energy does not exceed 45% of household income for any income group. To me, those sound amazing and hit all of the important issues. How are those goals going so far, and how does your work specifically support those goals? We are also very excited about these goals. Um, They really hit on the idea of enjoyable public space as well as land use and affordability and safety on our streets. The transportation work of the city, you know, has been going on for a very long time. It's just been spread across multiple departments. Um, And so we've really been working with these goals for, I would say, um, pretty solidly for about six months now, but we're just getting to the point where we're developing a baseline, really looking at how many of our trips to a grocery store can really be done in 20 minutes without requiring a private vehicle and looking at which neighborhoods that is true for and which neighborhoods that isn't. Um, So we're really taking a step back and pausing um, in order to understand how we're doing with these goals first. So how are you measuring these goals? That's a big topic these days, metrics. Yeah. Um, Well, we, as far as these goals go, we're really just starting. I mean, the City has a couple of ongoing projects, one being an equity analysis where we're looking at, you know, how the city has been investing in transportation in our different neighborhoods and comparing them with each other or where we've been investing a lot in transportation, but we're really not making a huge impact. We're looking at where we're getting the most three on ones, which is our citizen sort of issue reporting uh, method. Um, and we're looking at, you know, bus service in those neighborhoods, car ownership in those neighborhoods, really really starting to understand and build tools to make it easier to understand where um, we are seeing those investments and where there are areas of high need. Um, Another project that's going on is we're just beginning to analyze our our crash data. Um, We're looking at that from both a historical perspective, so what, you know, areas in the city locations where we've seen a lot of crashes or near misses or um, even complaints in the 311 data, but also risk-based, so the areas that The places in the city and the locations that maybe look like they could cause crashes, areas with wide streets and fast-moving traffic and narrow sidewalks, as well as a lot of pedestrians, so high transit stops. So we're just beginning to assess kind of a baseline um, 
as far as these goals go so that we can build on that. It also struck me that these goals seem to be very inclusive, intentionally inclusive and explicit about considering all ages, in particular families and children. That seems like one of those policy goals that everyone would agree with in theory, but may get difficult to stick to once choices are being made inside the right-of-way. Have they been easy to implement? (laughs) Um, Well, like with the new department, I would say these goals in particular are very, they're new for us, but I think definitely talking to people about all ages and abilities and talking to people about the idea of, say, an intersection being intuitively navigated by an adolescent you know, does resonate with a lot of people. They, you know, know everyone knows a 14-year-old who suddenly wants that freedom to be able to go downtown by themselves on a bus ride, and everyone knows those intersections that would uh, frighten a parent or an aunt or a friend. Um, and so it is something that really resonates with people. But when we, you know, when we go out to the community to talk about projects, we always talk about trade-offs, and we try to lay everything out as clearly as we can so that people can understand, like, Yes, we might need to lose a couple of parking spaces, but it's going to make this intersection a lot easier to cross. And even if you are primarily a vehicle driver, once you park, you do become a pedestrian. Um, So really helping people understand the full picture of transportation um, and the sort of reasoning behind those goals. And I can't say it's always easy or that we always make the right choice, um, but we do our best to sort of lay out all the information. So you've been working on Pittsburgh's bike plan, which is forthcoming, and I read an article where you shared the importance of the plan really setting the stage before a facility or improvement is ever dropped in front of someone's home or business. For those of us involved in this work, we know it can be a very emotional process, and I'm wondering how you embrace or combat the emotion when you're talking to communities about changes to their streets. Yeah, this um, we've been working on the bike plan for quite some time, as well as a, an overall mobility plan. Um, and it's this work is very important because it's a chance for the community to talk to planners at a very early stage. Before you're talking about a specific project or a specific bike lane, um, you're just talking about the vision for the city. So, you know, for example, if we have only three or four streets that you know traverse through a certain neighborhood. Some of them, one of them has to serve bicyclists, one of them really has to serve transit riders, and maybe one of them is more vehicular focused. But we need to, you know, together decide where those streets go. And, um, you know, it's really important to talk to the community very early so that these projects don't come out of nowhere, that they have been part of the decision-making process. Um, And on our end, projects come from everywhere. They come from 311, they come from council offices, they come from the community, um, they come from bike advocacy organizations, and we need the structure of a plan to be able to assess their merit as well as alternatives. So... Yeah, so we're going out um, to the community to talk about a bike plan to really set the stage and help people look forward to the changes that are coming on any given street. So currently you work for the city of Pittsburgh, but before that you worked for a couple of design firms known for people-centered design. What does that mean and why does it matter? Well, for a long time in the history of the United States, we've really been focused on streets that meet the needs of an automobile. And that's really, you know, been those design decisions have really made the needs of people who are using the street by any mode other than automobile suffer. Um, And so we people centered design is just really flipping the script on that and talking about if 
automobiles weren't even a factor, how would you design this street to really center around people? What is the best way to design? How wide should a sidewalk be for a human to inhabit it and feel safe, as well as feel pleasant and shaded and protected from the elements? Um, and so those we're trying to make those things important first and design for those things first before um, considering other factors. And people-centered design isn't just for streets, right? It can be applied, from what I understand, to almost any type of process. Yes. Um, you know, I do have an architectural background, so I really, you know, I think it's important to look at uh, our streets as kind of the living rooms of our city. There's some place, I like to say that they're really our only public space that everyone visits on a nearly daily basis. We have other great public assets in the city. We have great public parks and public trails, and those are very clearly thought of as our public assets, but people really don't think of the streets as great public spaces that they could be. Um, and so we're trying to trying to design them in that fashion. We want to, you know, when you think about, have I, have I visited a public space today? I want you to think, yes, I was on Smithfield Street, and it was awesome. Um, but the idea that our streets really are our greatest and most useful um, public assets and they should be designed for the people that use them. So you're originally from St. Louis. How did that shape your view of places? Uh, yes, I grew up in North St. Louis in a neighborhood called Florissant. Um, I actually grew up on a cul-de-sac. And um, I think it definitely, not that I... I had a wonderful time growing up there, but I always wanted to have a little bit more freedom as a kid. And I, you know, there were, were very strict guidelines on where I could walk, where I could walk with my parents, where I could walk with my older cousins. Um, but there was a lot, you know, because of the nature of the streets, there was were a lot of um, restrictions on that. And there just wasn't, also wasn't a lot of uh, things that you could really access as a child or even as a 14 or 16 year old uh, without an automobile. So I remember that that day of getting your license as a 16-year-old as really being a ticket to freedom. And I, I like the idea of living in a city where you don't have that restriction, where kids can really um, explore a little bit more on their own without the fear of dangerous streets. You've also lived in Seattle, San Francisco, Edinburgh, and of course, Pittsburgh. Tell us about life in those cities. Yes, I, I do love cities, so I have moved to several of them, um, but they've all taught me a lot. I mean, you know, everyone in the States knows Seattle and San Francisco are beautiful cities, um, beautiful street design. I do apparently love hills. All of those are very, very hilly cities. I don't know how I would live in a, a flat city, but yeah, I would, I mean, they all have very, very different qualities as far as the streetscape goes. Um, I actually think Pittsburgh and Edinburgh have a lot to learn from each other. Um, Pittsburgh is a city with very narrow streets. Uh, sometimes people call them goat paths. Um, but Edinburgh also is a city, it's just a medieval city. And um, some of the sort of navigation issues that I have in Pittsburgh, where you're trying to find the street that you are going to turn on, and you're actually standing on top of it, um, happened to me a lot in Edinburgh as well. And I think, I think they could learn a lot from each other. I actually studied abroad in the late 90s in Sheffield, England, and uh, was studying town planning there. 
And some of the colleagues I met there eventually got to visit Pittsburgh, and they felt really at home. So your comment about hilly cities strikes me. I think some people just are hilly city people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I am one of those strange people that actually likes climbing hills on a bike and wouldn't know what to do. I get very lost in flat areas with no um, topographical landmarks. Uh, one of my favorite comments about, it's actually about Chicago. I have an old intern who I hope listens to this, um, who moved to Chicago and he he was telling me that he gets on he gets on a road outside his office and he rides for seven miles in a straight line and gets to his house. And no one would understand why that's funny unless you live in Pittsburgh where you just can't, you know, the beautiful hills and rivers mean that you really can't, you know, we don't have a very connected grid um, like some flat cities uh, are able to achieve. It presents some challenges from a transportation perspective and also a neighborhood perspective. Um, it means that some of our neighborhoods are very cut off from other neighborhoods, um, but it's also it's also breathtaking sometimes. So yes, I am comfortably, unapologetically <laughs> from the flat part of the country here in Chicago and originally from West Central Illinois. I was really interested to read about another planning initiative happening in Pittsburgh called Pittsburgh Steps. It seems like it's a great shot at personalizing infrastructure. Infrastructure isn't an issue that's very sexy or top of mind for people, but obviously it impacts us all. So I'm curious if um, through the Pittsburgh Steps process, well, first, could you describe it to us and tell us whether people are feeling more connected to this bit of infrastructure through this planning process? Yes, people in Pittsburgh love the steps. And although the steps plan and the steps assessment is a new project, the steps are actually a very real um, piece of infrastructure in Pittsburgh. We have over 800 public staircases, uh, some of which are, they actually they all are City, city of Pittsburgh right-of-way. Some people have addresses off of staircases. Uh, there are areas of Pittsburgh that look like an M.C. Escher drawing. Um, it's been very interesting, and about 445 of those 800 staircases are actually on structure. So they're flying through a greenway. They um, are sitting up on piers with a lot of structural um, design and structure to them. And then the rest of them are jumper walks, which means that they're sitting next to a public street where the sidewalk is actually jumping, um, making a staircase. And so those those staircases that are flying through greenways and are sitting up on structure are a very, very expensive city asset. They're more like funding a small bridge. Um, the only steps projects that we've done in recent years has been eight hundred to a thousand dollars to replace one of those four hundred and forty five staircases um, and they were all built around the same time period. Most of them are concrete um, they're getting towards the end of their life, and a lot of them are in really bad shape and When I started at the city um, when there was a public safety issue, no matter how important the staircase was. Um, we would close it and maybe look for ways to fund a replacement, but we didn't have a lot of options. And so we're going through a, a steps assessment to really understand how each staircase fits into the pedestrian network. So we worked with GIS and Cartograph and really took every staircase and looked at how many destinations were in the walk shed of the top and bottom of each staircase. Um, we looked at how many transit riders, so really looking at ridership, not just routes, um, but how many transit riders were within walking distance of each staircase. Uh, looking at if we removed the staircase, 
how much of a detour that would cause and what um, what the quality of the street looks like on that detour. Um, so we're really looking at the importance of each step to the pedestrian network to understand uh, how to prioritize work on them. And so we're just wrapping up that assessment process, which has been a long process. Um, we also did a big community outreach push. We went to talk to all of the neighborhoods that have 10 or more steps, which is 26 neighborhoods out of 90. Um, and we also did a you know massive online outreach. We used a wiki map where people could actually you know click on their specific staircase and comment on them. Um, we also collected general data, just understanding how much people actually use the staircase. And through this process, we really learned that the staircases are deeply personal. A lot of people told us that the staircase and the step network is important because it's part of Pittsburgh's cultural identity as a Hillier City, and we had to really dive into what that really meant. Um, and we've also learned a lot about the energy that the city has, um, residents of the city have to actually do work on the steps. I put an open call for volunteers at one point to just go out and count the steps with me. And we had 300 people sign up in a day and I had to shut it down. People are really, really excited about the steps in Pittsburgh. So if you come, you'll have to go on a, go on a step tour. But, um, so we're just getting to the end of our steps assessment, which is really just prioritizing our steps importance within the pedestrian network. Um, and now we have to go out and actually get an engineer to do an inspection of all those steps to understand, you know, if these are our 150 high priority steps, uh, what does each of those staircases need to be up to a state of good repair? So we're just starting that process now. So sounds like an example of data-driven planning, which I know is Mm -hmm. all the rage these days. (laughs) Um, And you talked about the community piece too, but I'm wondering if there's more to say about how you pair the data-driven process with community-driven planning, or are they sometimes at odds? I I would say they are sometimes at odds. This um, assessment really worked for some neighborhoods, but other neighborhoods um, where the land use changes, you know, from block to block, uh, the sort of GIS assessment didn't work quite as well. It worked in our more denser neighborhoods where the land uses are pretty similar. Um, And that's because some of the staircases that were prioritized in the steps assessment, um, when we went out there, they either felt like private property, they were at the end of a cul-de-sac, Um, They were really steps that a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable using, and maybe a block away there was a staircase that didn't cause as much of a detour, but it was more used because it just felt more open and it felt more public because of the land uses surrounding it. And so there's always a need to constantly check the data-driven decision-making with the community. And so we're we're doing that now. We're going out with our um, prioritized list of staircases out to those 27 neighborhoods again. And we're going to ask, you know, did did this assessment work? Is this the correct staircase to really prioritize for repair or um, rebuild if that's what it needs? Um, and we'll learn from that process. And then we'll be publishing a project list. So I think you always have to go from that sort of data-driven prioritized list to a project list that does take into account that community input. You also mentioned um, the city's use of Cartograph to map assets and coordinate projects. How does that impact the work you do? Uh, We use Cartograph quite a bit in the transportation department, um, and we also use it from a sort of public information side. Cartograph is the backbone of a lot of our public maps, including the step map. 
Um, and if you look online at steps.pittsburghpa.gov, uh, you can actually click on any step and see its score um, from the step assessment. You can also see photos. You can see how many transit riders are in the vicinity. So we use Cartograph for you know to improve our public information, but we also use it. It's also the same program that we're sending our crews out into the field to do inspections um, with the same uh, the same system, and so it's a very very powerful tool. Switching gears for a minute, let's talk about the power of high profile advocates and the strange places from which they sometimes come. I'm thinking about mayors who've seen the light and even NFL players. In particular, I want you to tell us the story of Juju Smith-Schuster, who's known for riding his bike to practice and created a social media storm when his bike was stolen. I knew this was coming. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know Juju personally, unfortunately, but... um, you know, his story I did find very interesting because everyone in the city was pretty obsessed with it, um, obsessed with his lost bicycle. <laughs> and I also find it interesting because a lot of his answers were just like, I ride a bike because it's the simplest and easiest thing to do for me right now. Um, and if you go back to our goals, what we want to create in Pittsburgh is a an environment where the simplest and easiest and most enjoyable choice is to, you know, take that non-motorized travel um, so I was really excited to see some of the hear some of those answers from Juju, and where you know there are talks all the time about looping him more into the <laughs> at least into the promotion of some of our projects. So we know that this kind of work not only takes advocates and committed professionals, but it also takes leadership. Tell us about the role the mayor of Pittsburgh has played in this work. Yes, uh, Mayor Peduto just got reelected for his second term, um, so he's been in office about four and a half years, um, and he, you know, he's been in, in office since I've been working at the city. But he's been a constant supporter of this work and always very consistent with the messaging that we want to provide quality transportation to all of Pittsburgh. Um, he's been also instrumental in creating this new transportation department. He saw how much we were struggling with communicating, you know, across multiple departments and not really having, you know, one um, voice in the leadership in transportation in Pittsburgh. And so he was really a proponent of creating this new department, getting us all in one house, and also developing the kind of transportation leadership and goals that we started this podcast with. You mentioned communication, and I've found in my work and the work I observe that planners are frequently asked, either implicitly or otherwise, to be communications experts. We haven't always necessarily had that training. I'm curious, how have you found success in this area? Well, I am slightly new to planning. Um, I started in architecture, and I sort of moved slowly into public space design over the course of my career. And I am surprised in planning about how many things that we are asked to become experts in. I've written, (laughs) communications is just one of those things. I mean, I've written a bus shelter and advertising sort of contract in RFP. Um, I've become an expert in the Pittsburgh Steps. Um, I've become an expert in a lot of other different sort of data sources that I've never never thought I would um, have to take a deep dive in. And communications really is one of those areas that is so important to planning. Um, I think, you know, we've touched on this a bit on our discussion today, but just a lot of these transportation decisions and changes that we are proposing to the public are very, very personal and very emotional for people. And understanding 
what people are looking for from their transportation system. So the importance of actually surveying and asking questions and being out there in the community is equally important to delivering the message in the right manner. Um, so we have had to become communication experts, um, and we have to be on top of how to discuss major transportation decisions in a way that resonates with people. It's so true. So something I ask of all my guests, uh, and I'm especially interested since you said you're relatively new to planning, in which arenas has planning noticeably moved the needle? What inspires you? What do you think we're getting right? Well, I would say the area that we just touched on, the idea of communications being one of the most important components of you know, successful transportation planning is actually really, really huge. Um, I know at NACTO this year, I went to a session that was supposed to be t- about congestion pricing and everyone just presented about their communications campaign. But I think, you know, I think it's very easy to sit in a room full of planners and just talk about the details and the jargon and the data. Um, but being able to get across to the community that this is really a project for you and all of this data supports that project that is for you um, is really, really important. And I think that's an area where we are moving the needle, but also an area where there's still a ton of work to do. So that is my follow-up question. Which areas of planning do you feel like there is still work to do? I think methods of sort of incorporating that public feedback um, into the planning process. I mentioned that we use we use three one one data for so many things. It's really, really, you know, anyone who has who wants to tell me about an issue with an intersection, I say thank you very much, but please also put it in three one one because it's a record of of sort of transportation discussions over time. Um, So I think, you know, methods of really incorporating that kind of public feedback in new ways. Um, For the STEPS plan, we used a wiki map where people could, you know, click on a staircase and give us information. Um, We used 311 data, which is very app-based, but really understanding how to incorporate that massive amount of data and massive amount of direct public feedback into the planning process, I think, is, is where we're going. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. It's really interesting to hear about everything Pittsburgh has going on. If people want to learn more, what should they check out? Well, our newest project, which we talked a lot about today, is the uh, STEPS assessment. And that is a very easy um, web address. So I'll just give that one. It's steps.pittsburghpa.gov. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.